I got along for a number of different reasons. We just had, one thing, we just had a ton in common. Not, not only did we share the same first name, uh, but we both, as college students in Missouri, we were both from out of state, we both hailed from Oklahoma, and, and even more than that, both of us had the exact same birthday. April 5th, 1983. And I remember like the day learning that in Ozark Christian College, he and I were already buddies, but then discovering we had the exact same birthday and just realizing like we, we have to be best friends now. This is how this works, I think. And so uh, he and I, we, uh, we roomed together for several years. We were both in each other's weddings. We had a lot of fun together. And, and another big thing that we had in common is just that we shared a very similar sense of humor. We laughed at a lot of the same things. When Drew finished school, he went and he began to work in a church in Syracuse, New York. Uh, but one of the things that he would do kind of on the side is during the summers, he would go help with a, uh, with a camp ministry called Christ in Youth, or CIY, and, and he would travel around the country helping them run camps at different college universities. His main job was to be the MC at these events. And so his job was to kind of keep things moving and to make things fun and come up with ways to kind of get people engaged, all those things. One of the games that Drew came up with to keep people involved and engaged and make things fun was this game he just kind of invented called Spoiler Alert. And, and the, the way Spoiler Alert worked, it was a very, very simple game, actually. He would be in a room, he would call one student up onto the stage, and he would ask them a series of random trivia questions, just about whatever, right? And for every one they get right, they get a point, and they move closer to getting some sort of ra- uh, prize or whatever. Um, but the twist was, and here's where that name comes in, every time that student got a question wrong, Drew would speak into the mic and spoil the ending of a movie for everyone in the room. Right? So, like, he would just be, he would be talking, and the guy would get something wrong, and he'd be like, I'm sorry, that is incorrect. And in the sixth sense, Bruce Willis was dead the whole time. Right? He would just be kind of like that, right? Um, oh, I'm so sorry. And in The Empire Strikes Back, you will find that Darth Vader is really Luke Skywalker's father. Okay? And, and I'm doing ones, right, that we all know, because I don't want to make anybody angry in here, right? <laughs> Drew was doing, like, like, movies that were in the theaters that summer. <laughs> movies that people were planning to go see. And he was just telling them the ending right there. And as you can imagine, people did not like it. Uh, by, the, by the time like, he would get to the end, people are covering their ears and they're shouting and they're booing both Drew and the poor kid who's got all this pressure on him to not ruin movies for everyone. It was just a like, terrible experience for everyone except for Drew. Drew loved it. And because I have a similar sense of humor uh, to Drew, I can actually, I think that's hilarious. I can laugh about it. But I admit that if I was one of those people sitting in the room with Drew uh, all those days ago, sitting out in the audience, I would be just as mad as everybody else. Uh, Because I hate spoilers. I hate when people ruin the ending of a good story for me. Tell me the the plot twist in a movie or tell me how a a book concludes or or how a show ends, any of those things. I I hate that. Anytime people start talking about a show that I'm currently watching, I just like kind of plug my ears and la, 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 la. I don't want to know those things. Most of you probably are in that camp. I know some people, some weird people who are not like that. Who, who will literally like start to read a book and before they go, like they'll only go a little in and they'll go to the last chapter and read the ending of that chapter before they do it. Or they'll be in the middle of a movie and they'll pull it up on their phone to see how the movie ends. Any of you people do this? Any sick people in here do it? Okay, 
Yes, that's, I, cannot, I cannot even fathom that. I, I cannot fathom that. That, to me, ruins the whole thrill of the story, ruins all the fun of the story. But it can do more than that, actually. Actually, it can also hinder your ability to understand the story and the significance of the story. I mean, if you, if you just tune in at the very end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, you go to the return of the king, and in the last scene, you just flip on and see uh, Sam carrying Frodo up Mount Doom, you, you may grasp in that moment that something important is happening because of the music and because of the way they're talking to each other. And you may know that what's happening in the next few minutes is something worth being excited about and celebrating, but if you've never gone back and if you've never seen the beginning of the story, if you've never seen the Fellowship of the Ring or the opening lines of that, you don't know why this is such a big deal, and you don't know what it is with that ring around his finger, and why it matters that they're getting it where they get it, all of those things. We need to grasp the significance of a beauty and the fullness of a story. We need to know how it starts. So, spoiler alert, the way our story will end At the very end, over all the way to that tree over there, it ends with God winning. It ends with God redeeming everything that was lost, restoring everything that was broken, making everything right again. But question, what exactly is it that he redeems? What exactly is it that was broken? What ends up lost? What is it that needs to be restored? And to be able to understand that, we need to start at the beginning. And that's what we're going to do today in Genesis chapter 1. It's here in this opening chapter and in the opening verses that we are going to encounter the main, uh, the two main characters in the story. Uh, although that's not entirely accurate, actually. Uh, the, there's only one main character in this story. There's only one main hero. M- maybe a better way to say it is that we will encounter the primary character and the secondary characters. And we will learn truths about these characters that are going to set us up for the rest of the story. And we are going to parse out some implications from those truths that will not only help us understand the story, but will help us understand our lives today and how this story applies to us. So... Let's jump in the first verse of the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. Genesis 1-1 says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And here we see the primary character of the story. And from the very first verse, we are already learning things about him already discovering things about this character. For example, we learn that at the beginning of all things, God was already there. There is a beginning to this story. There is not a beginning to our main character. That he simply exists and he has always existed. And everything else in the universe, everything else was created. Everything else is contingent, is dependent on something else to exist. There was a time when they did not exist. And unless God sees fit to sustain them into eternity, there will be a time when they no longer exist. That's not true of God. 
It's not true of our main character. He has always existed and will always exist, and he is dependent on nothing for that existence. Here's another truth we discover about this God is that he is the creator of everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That phrase, the heavens and the earth, I think that's just a way of saying totality. Everything. Everything seen and everything unseen. And the word that gets used there uh, for created, the word in Hebrew is bara, and, and it's a word that gets used 54 times in the Old Testament. Never of anyone other than God. People can make, people can build, others can form, others can uh, group together and, and build up and all of these things. Only God baraz. Only God creates, which means everything that has been created has been created by him. Galaxies and grass blades, protons and the Pacific Ocean, sand grains so small that it'll slip through your fingers and stars big enough to hold our sun inside of it five billion times over, all of it comes from him. Every bit of it spoken into existence by God. And from this truth, there are at least two interrelated implications for us to be able to grab a hold of. The first is this, that God does not need anything. Actually, we we heard this very truth in our sermon last week. Jim was speaking about Paul's sermon in Athens on the Areopagus. And in that sermon, Paul actually says these words, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands, so as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. See, the truth is, if God is able to speak anything into existence with a word, that means that he needs nothing. There's nothing that we can give to him that he hasn't already provided. Everything is gift. That truth is going to be really important later on. So hold on to that for just a little bit. Here's the second implication that we can draw from this truth of God as creator of all things, and that is that it all belongs to him. If he made it all, it's all his, and it all exists for him, for his glory, for his purposes. Now, that can be a scary thought, this idea of an all-powerful being with absolute claims on everything, including you and I. That can be a nightmare, honestly, if that being is the wrong sort of being, if that being is finicky or volatile or unstable. And this is how many of the ancients actually thought of the gods back in the day when this book was first written. Many of them saw them in just that way, and this was a scary proposition. One God over everything, and this is honestly the way many people think of that concept of God today. Unstable, finicky, volatile, not good, and therefore Why should we even try to believe? Who even wants to believe in a God if there's a God like that who has claims on everything? But is that the way that this God is described? Let's read on. Genesis 1, verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. One of the things I realized pretty quickly as I began to walk through this this text is just that there is so much to unpack in Genesis 1. 
And I realized pretty quickly that there's so much that we're not going to be able to cover today. So let me give you just a quick plug. Uh, we have this uh, podcast that our staff here at Sunnybrook ha has been doing for some time now called Consider This. And, and the whole goal of that podcast is basically to, to discuss and answer questions about the Bible and theology and culture and life and discipleship and all of these things. And, and one of our goals this week actually is to record kind of a podcast uh, breaking open Genesis 1 a little bit just because there's so much that we're not going to be able to get through here. So if you're interested in learning more and walking through more, you can, you can go and find that and listen but here's what we have time to jump into now. We notice here in verse 2, it says this, that the earth was formless and empty. And this is a very interesting Hebrew phrase. Uh, it's a difficult term to pin down, not because Hebrew scholars don't know what it means, but because we don't really have an English equivalent for it. So it gets translated in a number of different ways as people are trying to grab a hold of this concept and kind of convey it to it. Uh, some people translate it to say that the earth was a formless void. Others say that in the beginning the, the, wor the earth was confused emptiness or that the earth was wild and waste. The idea that's being described here is that of disordered chaos. That's what you have, the watery depths of everything there, and it's just disordered chaos. Picture uh, the beauty, uh, the ornate beauty and design of a Persian rug with all the patterns and all those things that go into it that make it beautiful and, and make it functional and make it work, and then picture that just completely unraveled, and all you have is a mess of the threads and the wool there tangled up on the ground. That's kind of the idea that's getting, that it's getting after. There's something there, but it's effectively nothing. It's nothing until God steps in and does something. And, and we see there in this chaos that the Spirit of God is hovering over it, not emerging from it. That was the story that many of the ancient myths told, that the gods emerged from the chaos and then they kind of had to battle the chaos. No, no, no. This God is separate and distinct from it. He is not tied up into the universe. He is separate and distinct. And yet, he is not distant from that universe we see from the very beginning hovering over it, intimately involved. And what is it that this God does with the chaos? Verse 3. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. There was an evening and there was a morning one day. What God does is he takes the chaotic emptiness and from it he creates order and wholeness and it is good. We won't read the whole chapter, but just know that that's the pattern that plays out over and over again. Every day we see God creating and bringing new things into existence and then creating function and form for all of those things, putting them in their place, and then it is called good. And everything this God makes is good, and the reason why is because this God himself is good. He's not like the gods of the ancient Near East where you don't exactly know their character or their temperament. He himself is good and he brings about good things. And this theme actually will play itself out all the way through scripture. That where God is, he brings order. Where God is, he brings beauty. Where God is, he brings life. And on the flip side, the further away one gets from God, the more they descend into chaos. 
the more they begin to unravel, the more you find yourself entering into death and destruction when you walk away from the one who is life and beauty. Here's the point at which, as we begin to move through these days of Scripture, in which we, as modern readers, begin to ask a lot of questions, a lot of how questions. Yes, yes, God made it, but how did he make it? How did he bring these things about? And how long did it take? Are these literal days, or are these ages, or are these epochs, or is it all kind of just figurative? How does he bring this to place? I want you to know I'm not trying to sidestep the issue. Those are good questions, and they're worth asking. You just need to understand those are not questions that this text is interested in answering. That's not what they cared about. Uh, They thought, John Walton is kind of an Old Testament scholar, and he's like a Genesis expert. He says that, that moderns, when we come to, when we have questions about the origins of the universe, all of our questions are structural. That is, how did the physical matter come to be? How did it get brought in together into the structures that it is? Those are not the questions that they were asking. They were asking questions of function. Their, their questions of origins are functional. That is, how did everything find its place? How did God put everything and weave it all together so that it all serves a common purpose? And how does that affect our lives today? Those are the kinds of questions that they're trying to ask. Again, we can probably get into this a little bit more in the podcast, but not too much here. Here's one of the things I want you to see, though. Even though I think it's perfectly legitimate to ask questions like, how did it all come about? If you spend too much time trying to ask that here, you're going to miss the point. You're going to get distracted by the how it all came to being rather than focusing on the who brought it all to be. That's what the writer wants you to keep your eyes on. He wants you to see who brought it about, who brought it into existence. It's, it's almost like going to a play, and while you're sitting there in the kind of opening scenes that are setting the stage and introducing you to the character and seeing how he interacts, it's like someone sitting from the back and going, yeah, but how did you build the set? What kind of paint did you use on that door over there? Right, that's... That's besides the point. You can ask those questions. We can go and talk about those things, but, but that's, that's not what the play is trying to convey. It's trying to convey something to you about this person, who he is and what he does. The question is, what does this tell us about God? And what it tells us is that he is both glorious and good, that he needs nothing but deserves everything. And this includes us. This includes our lives and our worship and our affection and our obedience. And as much as we may want to ask questions about how things come to be, the first response when we observe what God has done in the skies and on the earth and when we see it and read about it in Scripture, the first response should be that of the 24 elders in Revelation 4. As they stand around the throne room of God and they cast their thrones down before him and say these words, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things. And by your will, they exist and were created. That's what Genesis 1 wants us to see when we look at God and all that he has brought about. So what does Genesis 1 tell us then about the secondary characters? What does it want us to know about them? Well, to see that, we jump down to day six. We jump down towards the end of the chapter, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. 
He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on the earth. One of the fundamental questions about humanity One of the fundamental questions of humanity, one of the basic questions that everyone asks to some degree in some way is why? Why are we here? It's a universal question that has been asked for centuries. It was asked by ancient sages and by modern philosophers. It's asked on a more individual level by uh, 50-year-olds going through a midlife crisis and by college students switching their major for the fourth time in their sophomore year. Like it's asked constantly, who am I? Why am I here? What is my purpose? And I want to offer you just a quick principle. It's not really profound. I think it's fairly simple and obvious, but that is that if you want to know the purpose of something, you've got to know the design of that thing. That purpose flows from design, right? I can look at a vase and get a pretty good idea just by looking at the design that this thing is not meant for hammering nails in. Right? I, can, I can know by observing the design, and if not that, then I can know by asking the designer, why did you make this? Why did you design it in this way, and what is the purpose that you hope for? That's the same with humans, that we know our purpose by knowing our design. So the question is, what is our design? And the text tells us right here that our design is we were made in the image of God. We were designed to be in his image. There's a lot of ink that has been spilled trying to explain what exactly that means to be made in God's image. What is it about human beings that we are image bearers when nothing else in creation is? Uh, Some will point to our capacity for creativity. Just as God is a creative God, we are creative people. Some will point to our capacity for communication, for higher language skills, or our ability to create culture unlike any other sort of species or those kinds of things. And, and, And all of those may have something to do with it. But I think the best way to get to the answer here is to ask the question, what did image mean to them? Like when this was written back in the ancient world, what did the idea of image mean? And, and, and there are a handful of ways that this word image was used back then. Uh, one of the primary ways, actually in the Bible specifically, the word is selim in the Hebrew. And the primary way that the word selim is used is to describe idols. Actually, those of you guys familiar with the King James, you know this, right? Thou shalt not make for yourself any graven, what? Images. That's, that's the word right there. You shall not make for yourself any images, any idols. And, and what people believed about idols, kind of the common understanding is that that's my God and I'm worshiping my God. That's not really what they believed back then. What they believed is that the idol was a representation of the God. It might not exactly be like what the God looked like, but it is a representation of the God and the God's presence and that there was some sense of the divine essence in that image. Another way that this word would get used is is that a king, if he were wanting to establish his authority in a new territory, say a a territory that he's recently conquered or annexed, one of the ways that he would establish his authority, one of the ways that he would make his authority known is to place an image of himself in that territory. 
whether that be a, a statue as we see with uh, Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel or whether that be like a painting somewhere, a way that everyone can look and go, oh, if I want to know what my king is like, I look at that image. That's, that's how I know who my king is and, and, and is a way of establishing authority over places. Maybe the primary and most important way that we see this idea used is to describe the relationship of uh, children to fathers. So like in, Ephi, or in Genesis 5, a few chapters later, we'll see that it says in 5 verse 1 that Adam was made in the likeness of God. And then just two verses later it will say, and Seth was made in the likeness of Adam. And so there's this comparison right there next to each other of what human is to God in some degree is what a child, what a baby is to their father. That is something born with the inherent, like the, the capacity, the potential to become like their father. And as they grow, they become to look more and more like them as they relate to him and, and get to know him and begin to walk in his steps. And when we kind of tie all of these things together, I think that maybe the best way to sum up what it means to be an image bearer is these three things things, these three words, that to bear God's image means that we represent him. That is that we are designed to reflect God's character and his goodness and his love and his mercy and his justice and his truth and his holiness, that when someone looks at me, when someone looks at you, they ought to be able to get a picture, a glimpse of what their God is like. Uh, another thing that it means to be an image bearer is that we are to rule on his behalf, not for ourselves, but on his behalf. We're like kind of vice regents ruling under his authority. And we saw that in the text. It says he made them in his image and then says, rule over the fish and the birds and the, and the plants and the animals and all of those things. The idea is that as God takes chaos and brings order and beauty and life, that actually human beings are designed to do the same thing. That we are to take the raw materials of this world and we are to cultivate this world and to care for the creation just as God does on God's behalf. And that includes other image bearers, that we are to care for them just as he would. Third thing that it means to be made in the image of God is that we are to relate to him. That we were made, unlike any other species, unlike any other creature, plant or animal or anything else, that we were designed to live in relationship with our maker designed to know him and to love him. And the idea, he says, in 28 is that you make, God makes these image bearers, and then he tells them in 28, be fruitful and multiply, and that the image of God and the glory of God would be multiplied throughout the world as they spread and travel and as they multiply throughout. That was the idea. That was the goal. And this concept of humanity and its origins is radically different from the concept of the world that it was written into. In the ancient Near Eastern world where, where this book was written, like the, the, the common understanding of how human beings came about, it went something like this. That back in the beginning, there were all these different gods, and the gods really had like multi, multiple levels. There were kind of three tiers of gods. You had the big gods on top, and then you had the, the little gods underneath them, and then uh, for all my sorority friends, you had the G little gods underneath those, right? And, and, and the, the main idea was that these gods were the ones who ruled everything, and the G little gods, like their main task and job was to serve the needs and the wants and the desires of the big gods and to take care of them. But after a while, they got tired of that. 
And they said, we don't want to do this anymore. We don't want to spend all of our time waiting hand and foot on these big gods. We need, what if we were to come up with some sort of machine, some sort of slave, something to do the work for us? And so what they did is they killed one of the other gods, slaughtered that god, and then they took his blood, and they mixed that blood with clay, and that's how humans were born. And in the ancient Near East, that is the design of human beings. Our design is born out of conflict and violence. And that means that our purpose, if it is to serve the gods, our purpose is essentially to keep our heads down and to try to give the gods whatever they want, to to try and uh, scratch their back so hopefully they'll scratch ours, to not make them too angry. That's all human purpose comes down to is simply slaving away for the gods and hoping that they'll give a little bit even as they demand a lot. Or compare this with the common view today of what human beings are. The the primary view, uh, the the non-religious view of what human beings are today is that we are simply animals who just happen to be more highly evolved than all the other animals. But essentially, we all came from the same single-celled organism. We just got lucky. We've made it a little farther. We've developed further along, which means this, that there is no design for human beings. We're just the random products of time and of chance, which of course means that there is no purpose for human beings. And any sense of purpose that you may feel about meaning or significance or truth or right or wrong or love or innocence or guilt, any of that you feel is not real. It's just the random chemical firings of that hunk of meat inside of your skull. And because there is no purpose, because there is no design, it does something very odd. Back to John Walton again. He says that this view of humanity simultaneously makes us gods and nothing at the exact same time. Most human beings operate as God and nothing because there is no inherent dignity or worth with just being the most highly evolved of the animals just an animal that made it a little further. There's no inherent dignity or worth, but because there's not and because there's no purpose, then what we all end up living like is, is kind of like the gods of old in that the, the world and the universe revolves around me and me trying to get whatever I want out of life and getting as much pleasure and as much comfort as I can in life. But again, this works all the way back down because as we do this, as I seek after as much and much pleasure as I want, I am going to be forced at some point to degrade myself and to degrade others to do it. And so the modern view pulls us down to the bottom of the chain as it even raises us up to the top. The biblical picture, though, stands in dark contrast or stark contrast. It vehemently disagrees with both of these two views. We are more, the Bible says, than just talking animals with no purpose other than to try to scrape together as much pleasure and as much comfort as we can in this life. No, we were designed with a purpose, and that purpose is more than just serving the whim and the desires of finicky gods. We, you, are image bearers created to reflect the beauty and the glory and the goodness of the one true God, created to live in fellowship with your maker, created to live for the glory of God and for the good of others. And by the way, living for the good of others, not only is that part of what you're designed to do, it also becomes a lot easier 
to live for the good of others, whether that be my neighbor or whether that be someone of a different race or whether that be the unborn or the intellectually disabled or people with different political opinions of me, I can live for all of their good when I recognize that the image sits in them as well. That there is inherent worth and dignity in being human because that human comes from and is made in the image of the most glorious creature ever. Not creature, that would be created. The most glorious being ever, God himself. So what are the implications of this? How does this play out into the story and how does this play out into our own life? There's a lot of implications probably we could draw from this, this concept of imago Dei, being in the image of God. But here's one really important one. If I am made in God's image, then I will never fully know who I am until I know who he is. Identity is such a huge issue in our world today. Everyone trying to go around figuring out who they are and who they're going to be. And the two primary ways that we are told to try to get an identity is either, number one, we create an identity for ourselves, mostly through our accomplishments, by what I'm able to do, by what I'm able to be, by what I'm able to become, or how high I'm able to climb, or we search an identity out, mostly by searching deep inside of ourselves to look in and try to figure out who is it that I feel like I am? Who is it that I think I might be? And to try to search and figure that out so that I can pull that out, so that I can be who I'm really supposed to be. The Bible says that is not true. You are image bearers. You're like a mirror. And mirrors do not display any sort of image by conjuring up that image from within themselves. They don't create that image. Mirrors are an image when they turn to something and reflect it. That's where the image comes from. That's where the identity comes from. And I would argue that every identity that everyone tries to put on is just a result of what they've turned themselves towards over the course of their lives. And the idea is that you and I were meant to turn ourselves towards God, and it is as we do that and as we take on his character traits that we become mostly who we truly are to the fullest extent. And that leads to kind of this other big implication It is true, we said this earlier, that God deserves everything, that he deserves all that we have and all that we are, but it's also true that our deepest joy comes from giving that to him. You see, if I am truly made in his image, then I will find my greatest fulfillment and meaning and significance when I live out that image in relationship with him. When I am living in line with his character, that's, that's where joy comes. And so here at the very beginning of the story, we see this beautiful truth that will set the foundation for the rest of the story. And that is that God's glory and our joy are not two competing entities. That they go hand in hand. That they work together. That as I am glorifying him, I find my greatest joy. But sadly, that is not what we have come to believe. Because soon, a third character will enter the story. And this character will come to deceive. And the main goal of this character is to tell us, to trick us into believing that everything that we're looking for, happiness and pleasure and fulfillment and significance and joy, that all of that is found somewhere apart from our creator. That God, our creator, is out to keep good things from us. 
told you I was going to hit it at some point. I knew it. <laughs> and this is where the lostness comes. And this is where the brokenness comes. Because as we buy into that lie that all of my joy and fulfillment and happiness is going to be found away from him and that his glory and what he wants is just trying to keep me from happiness and keep me from joy, as I begin to move away from him, as we discuss this, I descend into chaos. We see this. We, we see this, right? All the way throughout the story of Scripture, all the way throughout history, we see this in our own lives, that the further we move away from God and his purposes and his plan, the more unraveled we become, the less ourselves we truly become. And one way to frame up this entire story is that it is a story of image bearers who are spiraling away from God into chaos, into death, into destruction, and all along the way, it is a story of a God pursuing them and stepping in where they've brought destruction and bringing life again and stepping in where they've brought disorder and bringing beauty again. And over and over again, he does this, coming after them and saving them and redeeming and making things whole. And the pattern repeats a thousand different times until finally one day, God sends one. God brings one who will come and restore everything perfectly. One who will come and bring ultimate healing to the brokenness that exists between creator and image bearer because he will be both at the exact same time. John explains it this way in a text that sounds remarkably like Genesis 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. You probably know the word that he's referring to there is Jesus, the very son of God, the second member of the Trinity. And yes, the father is there at the creation in the beginning. And yes, the spirit of God hovers over the chaotic waters, but there's a second member there the third together coming together and that is Christ the Son and everything that the Father spoke into existence whether it be those grains of sand or those gigantic red hyper giant stars all of it was spoken into existence through his Son Jesus Christ is the creator through whom chaos became beauty through whom emptiness became fullness and he's come to do it again John 1.14, just several verses down, says this, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And in his coming to the earth, Jesus comes to enter into our chaos, to enter into our death and destruction, and through his own death on a cross, to take all of that chaos on himself, to take all of that destruction on himself so that he can put an end to it forever, just as the world was once created through him, so it will one day be recreated through him, and so you and I now can be recreated through him. The story of God begins with a good and glorious creator who made a beautiful world in which we could know and enjoy him forever. And the story of God will end with him doing it all over again. And that's why, one of the many reasons why, we come together every week to celebrate.
to celebrate the fact that God has already begun this process. He has already begun to make things new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has gone, and behold, the new has come. He's doing it all over again, and so we come together every week, and we celebrate this together as a body, as a church, as the recreated people of God who are slowly but surely by the Spirit's work in us being reformed into the likeness of our Creator, remade into the image of the one ultimate true image bearer, Jesus Christ himself. And so, brothers and sisters, that's worth celebrating. Let's take and let's eat. And together, let's celebrate the forgiveness that makes that possible through the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's drink. And now, like the elders of Revelation 4, it just makes sense that we would cast our crowns down and begin to worship the God who created all things for his purposes and his glory. Let's do that now.